Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Craig Pittman will discuss his book, Oh, Florida, Sunday, April 8th at 2 p.m. at the Orange County Regional History Center. People in other parts of the country, they'll look at the news, they'll turn on CNN, and they'll say, oh my God, look what's happening. And people in Florida, especially us natives, we look at it and go, okay, where's the Florida connection? Because we know there has to be one. There's always a Florida connection. We'll revisit the controversy about changing the name of Cape Canaveral to Cape Kennedy and back again. Even though it was a very regional issue, it started to become kind of a national political issue over the years. And we'll discuss artist Alban Palaszczuk, whose home is now a museum in Winter Park. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Pittman is a popular columnist for the Tampa Bay Times and the author of three best-selling books on Florida's natural environment. Pittman's latest book, Oh Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country, is humorous, but contains a lot of good information about Florida history and culture. I'm a big believer in the using the spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down method of of uh, shoveling a lot of Florida history and culture in, down people's throats. And so uh, I tell a lot of the weird, wacky stuff that happens in Florida, but I use it as sort of a setup for leading him into learning more about Florida history, some of which is admittedly pretty wild and weird also. Throughout its history, Florida has been a state full of contradictions, unusual stories, and eccentric individuals. I really enjoyed uh, a book called A Rogue's Paradise by uh, James Denham that uh, was very helpful in telling me what Florida was like before we were even a state, that we were, even then we were pretty wild and, and crazy. Uh, and Denham quotes one visitor to the, to the Florida from that era who said that, you know, at least half the people who lived in Florida were con men and crooks and the other half were their penniless victims. So, you know, not much has changed. Um, um, and I always love citing the, the first state flag saying, 
Let Us Alone, which people really identify with is either a wish or a warning. Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, visit to Tallahassee, where he found the place to be uh, already full of desperados and land speculators, uh, that was that was a, a nice little bonus. And um, uh, being from Pensacola, I like to cite uh, the opinion, the very low opinion of Andrew Jackson's wife, about the place, calling it a vast howling wilderness, <laughs> which I'm not sure she'd like it much now either with all the uh, all the adult business establishments there. So um, I, I do like to, and I, I should mention that I enjoy uh, visiting a lot of the historical uh, monuments and historical uh, societies and museums around Florida. And uh, one of those, uh, the one in Cedar Key, uh, actually clued me into something I didn't know about, uh, which was uh, I picked up a book in their, in their uh, book selection, about a history of Cedar Key and just sort of at random opened it up and there was a, just maybe a sentence or two talking about the time that the mayor of Cedar Key, this was in 1890, basically set himself up as an island dictator. He had a, a thug who functioned as his town marshal and the two of them walked around carrying shotguns and they would order random people on the street to do crazy stuff like, hey, you two headbutt each other. Um, and nobody dared to stand up to them. There was one woman, we don't know her name, unfortunately, who wrote a letter to President Benjamin Harrison and said, you know, nobody else will, will complain about these guys, but I will. I, I don't have anybody. I'm, I'm a widow. I don't have any children. I'm going to write and tell you that these guys need to be stopped. And about then is when they really slipped up and they roughed up the keeper of the customs house, who was a federal employee. And so based on that act and the complaint from this lady from Cedar Key, President Benjamin Harrison sent a Navy cutter to Cedar Key to arrest the mayor. So Cedar Key is the only American city that underwent a military coup. <laughs> Why Cedar Key does not have an annual celebration to that, a la the Gasparilla Festival, featuring, you know, a, a ritual invasion and the chasing of the mayor down the street where everybody pelts him with popcorn, I don't know. I think it would be a huge money raiser for the city. <laughs> In his book, Oh, Florida, Craig Pittman argues that Florida is the most interesting state and that we have a connection to everything. People in other parts of the country, they'll look at the news, they'll turn on CNN, they'll say, oh my God, look what's happening. And people in Florida, especially us natives, we look at it and go, okay, where's the Florida connection? Because we know there has to be one. There's always a Florida connection. Uh, you know, we, the, there was a, a Florida man involved in the Lincoln assassination conspiracy. Of course, he bungled his assignment. Um, we had, uh, you know, the Watergate burglars were from, were from Miami, uh, bungled their assignment, led to the, the uh, downfall of Richard Nixon. Um, we we're we're just in everything uh you know who was it that told ken Starr it was okay to go after bill clinton's uh, sexual escapades well that was janet reno the classic florida woman she's the one that told him it was all right to do that so there's always going to be that florida connection somewhere if you look for it you'll see it craig pittman's three previous books were about florida's natural environment oh florida is something new for the author each one of them goes into some history in, in each one. Paving Paradise was sort of about the history of wetlands protection and wetlands loss in Florida. Um, uh, Manatee Insanity is definitely, it's an environmental history book. It's about the history of attempts to protect the manatee, starting with the law that Florida passed in 1893, uh, initially making it illegal to kill a manatee without getting a permit from your county commission. Then it was only supposed to be for scientific reasons, not just to eat them. And, the, and then uh, The Sin of Scandal is... Uh, not so much a history book as a as sort of a uh, a yarn. Basically, it's just a great story. Uh, on the back, it's it's classified as unlike any other book I've ever seen. It's classified as true crime slash gardening, because it's about an orchid smuggling case that took place in uh, Tampa federal court 
and involved smuggling this orchid from Peru through the Miami airport and taking it to Sarasota to Selby Botanical Gardens so that the guy who found it could have it named after him, which was tantamount to having a sign on his back saying, please come arrest me. Uh, and Selby Gardens itself wound up becoming the first scientific institution in the United States to be charged with wildlife trafficking as a result. So, and the story took lots of wild twists and turns, as Florida stories often do. It's been noted that people seeking something different have no place left to go once they reach Florida as we hang off the southeastern corner of the United States. Pittman says that a lot of the weirdness that comes out of the state may be because Florida has always been a very diverse state and is even more so today. A lot of it, a lot of it, especially now, is just because we've undergone this wrenching demographic change. You know, we were the least populated southern state in 1940, and now we are the third most populous state in the country. We surpassed New York in 2014. So we've got 20 million people living here from many, many different places, speaking many different languages, and we've got about 100 million tourists who come visit every year, uh, uh, as thanks to an industry started by Harriet Beecher Stowe, of all people. Uh, so uh, you cram that many people together in a fairly small space because, you know, everybody's not spread evenly across the peninsula. We're all in like that 30 mile wide swath around the coast or along I-4. You know, we're bound to start ramming into each other's cars and chasing each other with machetes and, and, and arguing over whose dog pooped on whose lawn. Plus, we have this wonderful, you know, tropical uh, weather that means that we're not cooped up indoors three months of the year because of snow. We're out doing wild and crazy stuff all year long. Uh, and uh, I always have to mention we rank, we consistently rank 49th among the states for funding for mental illness treatments, uh, to which I can only say thank God for Texas. Chapters in O Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country, include Trading Gators for Beer, Road Warriors, and the Gunshine State. Craig Pittman. There's a chapter called Flirting with Disaster, because I contend that instead of Old Folks at Home, the Stephen Foster song, which, by the way, he wrote without ever having set foot in Florida, how Florida is that, that our state song ought to be Flirting with Disaster by Molly Hatchett, a band from Jacksonville, because uh, we... Uh, lead the country in the number of sinkholes. Uh, we are the lightning capital of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, we uh, have we are the shark bite capital of the world, mostly in Volusia and Brevard counties. Uh, and uh, we get hit by more hurricanes than any other state. You know, and yet we tell people it's paradise and they should come visit. Um, so yeah, Florida's trying to kill us, and and we should never forget that. And the pioneers they had to deal not just with with all of that stuff, but also with uh, you know, panthers, bears, alligators, and so forth coming after them. And even the plants were against them, you know, the the uh, uh, Spanish bayonet, the um, sawgrass, and the, uh, I'm always, I always mispronounce this, but the men menconeal, the deadliest tree in the world, uh, the uh, Spanish called the fruit, uh, the little apple of death, uh, because, you know, you, you take a bite and you're six feet under in no time. So, uh, and that, of course, it was the sap from that tree that allegedly the, the Calusa used to fatally wound Ponce de Leon when he came back to visit, when he made the mistake of coming back to Florida a second time. So I guess they weren't interested in repeat business for tourism at that point. As weird as Florida can be, Pittman says that we as Floridians should embrace that and let our freak flag fly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, who wants to live someplace boring? If you want to live someplace where you open the newspaper or look at the news every day and it's the same story over and over again, you know, go someplace like Wyoming or Nebraska, one of those square states. Uh, but if you want to live in a place where every day you look in the paper and 
and you go, oh, wow, a guy punched a swan or, uh, you know, oh, oh, wow, um, this uh, woman who wants to be a mermaid was wearing her artificial tail in the community pool and the homeowners association got angry and told her to stop because it violates their no fins policy. You know, then you're in the right place because those are the stories that we're going to have making news all the time. Um, and it's it's just a constant uh, cavalcade of amazement looking at the news here. And bear in mind, too, that, you know, this this collection of, of Florida men and Florida women that we have here, you know, the retired CIA employees, the avid uh, nudists, the uh, uniformed Scientologists, um, monkey uh, breeders, python wranglers, spam kings, strip club moguls. We've got 29 electoral votes, and we kind of control who's going to be the ruler of the free world uh, for four years. So, uh, you know, what you do here is pretty important. Craig Pittman is an award-winning columnist for the Tampa Bay Times and the author of three books on Florida's natural environment. His latest book is called Oh, Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country. This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. The 2018 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium will be held May 17th through 19th at the Hyatt Regency in Sarasota. The theme of the conference is Under the Big Top, History, Culture, and Architecture. The event will feature dozens of presentations and roundtable discussions on a wide variety of Florida history topics. Special tours will include a visit to the Ringling Museum of Art, the Circus Museum, and the unique Catazan Mansion, a trolley tour of historic Sarasota, and a boat tour. There will be a screening of the 1952 Cecil B. DeMille film, The Greatest Show on Earth, which was partially shot in Sarasota. Featured speakers include Sarasota historian Jeff LaHerd and architecture expert Harold Bubiel. Dr. Ryan Duggins from the Bureau of Archaeological Research will discuss the recently discovered 7,000-year-old Pond Cemetery, which is submerged in the Gulf just south of Sarasota. The 2018 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium in Sarasota is three days of history and culture that you don't want to miss. Registration for the hotel and the conference is now open at myfloridahistory.org. That's myfloridahistory.org. I'll see you there. What's your name, little girl? What's your name? Shooting you straight, little girl, well, there ain't no shame. What's your name, little girl? What's your name? Shooting you straight, little girl, won't you do the same? Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Ben, Cape Canaveral is the oldest place name on any European map of the United States, but it wasn't always called Cape Canaveral. That's right, Ben. As early as 1513, when Ponce de Leon first sighted the landmass that we now know of as Florida and actually sailed past what we now call Cape Canaveral, he sighted the landmass, named it Cape Canaveral, and that place name existed. It began appearing on maps shortly after the expedition uh, and was so until the mid-20th century, when in November, specifically November 23rd of 1963, the U.S. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, that the incoming president, Lyndon Johnson, decided to rename the landmass Cape Kennedy in honor of President Kennedy. Now, as many listeners probably know, President Kennedy had been a very vocal proponent of manned spaceflight missions, in fact, unmanned missions as well. Earlier in the decade, he had announced that uh, we would put an American on the moon by the end of the 1960s, which of course occurred in July of 1969. Unfortunately, President Kennedy was assassinated, so Lyndon Johnson felt that it was appropriate to rename what was then known as the NASA Launch Operations Center and the actual landmass to name the entire area Cape Kennedy. Now, for most of the country, it seemed like an appropriate action. Uh, most congressmen were in support of this move. In fact, it was President Kennedy's wife who originally suggested it to President Johnson. Uh, so they took the necessary steps, and on Thanksgiving Day of 1963, President Johnson made an announcement and then shortly after issued Executive Order Number 11129, which officially changed the name of the Launch Operations Center to the Kennedy Space Center. And in doing so, he also and this is classic Lyndon Johnson, through his strong-arm uh, tactics, was able to convince the U.S. Board of Geographic Names to unanimously decide to also change the name of the actual landmass, the bite itself, from Cape Canaveral to Cape Kennedy uh, in 1963. And this all happened fairly quickly. And as I said, most of the country was in support of this action. However, even though Floridians loved President Kennedy, he uh, had a, a residence here in Florida. He had visited the state several times during his uh, campaign. And, and also uh, during his presidency, when they changed the name, many Floridians felt that, especially those who were aware of the history of the, the actual name Cape Canaveral, they were a little bit upset and began writing letters and, and lobbying the U.S. government to change the name back to Cape Canaveral. And of course, you have some historic letters here looking at this renaming issue. Yeah, we have six letters here to various uh, state and federal officials, and these are all written by a Brevard County resident, a Dr. Holzer, who had actually worked on several missions, including the Apollo Gemini uh, missions out at the, the Space Center. So he was actively involved uh, at the what would later become the Kennedy Space Center, but at that time was the Launch Operations Center. Uh, so he had a vested interest, uh, certainly in the complex itself, but was also a bit of a history buff. So he understood, again, that long lineage of, of Spanish colonial heritage that had existed and was uh, wrapped up in this place name. Uh, we're looking at here a letter to uh, Governor Ferris Bryant, and this is actually uh, a response from the governor where he explains that, yes, as a native Floridian, he also loves our history and, and wants to honor our cultures, but also felt that the remembrance of President Kennedy kind of trumped four centuries of, of Florida's history. We have another letter here from Edward Gurney, uh, who actually states that he wrote President Johnson and advised him of some of the sentiments that he was receiving from Florida constituents, and also mentioned that uh, 
the place name Cape Canaveral was not specifically suggested in the executive order. So here we have Congressman Gurney trying to convince the president that, well, you know what, maybe we at least need to specify. Uh, we have another letter here from Spessard Holland, who was a U.S. senator at the time, again, telling Dr. Holzer that, yes, we understand, but also felt that this was an appropriate move and there wasn't much we could do. Uh, here's another letter from George Smathers, U.S. Senator George Smathers, who lays out the actual public laws that allow the Department of the Interior to assign place names and to make changes to those place names. So he didn't seem too empathetic. Uh, and then we have Claude Pepper, who does seem uh, to to recognize at least the, the sentiment. Now, this went on for over a decade, and there were thousands of Floridians who wrote letters to, to the president, to successive presidents, trying to get the name changed. Uh, there were local newspapers that ran op-eds in, in their newspapers about uh, both for and against the, the place name. So even though it was a, a very regional issue, it, it started to become kind of a, a national political issue over the years. And clearly those who opposed the name change uh, eventually prevailed. That's correct. It was actually in 1973 when uh, Governor Reuben Askew finally came into office that he decided to take action at the state level and signed a state statute that uh, mandated that any state-produced document uh, would use the name Cape Canaveral rather than Cape Kennedy. So finally, a few months later, uh, the U.S. Board of Geographic Names decided to unanimously side with the, the state of Florida, which at that point had overwhelming support to change the name um, back to Cape Canaveral. However, the actual facilities themselves, the infrastructure, is still known as the Kennedy Space Center today, or shortly KSC. So we still remember uh, President Kennedy's role, his contributions to the space, the, the early space race in the 1960s. However, the actual historic place name that has now existed for over 500 years is still in place today. Interesting as always. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. What was your name, little girl? What's your name? Shooting you straight, little girl, won't you do the same? Woo! This is Florida Frontiers. The Winter Park home of artist Album Palashik is now a museum and sculpture garden. Portia Dossi, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has more. When you go visit a park and you see large works of art, nobody knows who the artist is that did them. And it's very unusual for people to recognize. But what's fun is when we have people from around the country that just happen to go ahead and come to the museum, and then they get in there and say, Oh my God, I've been looking at that my whole life. The docents get a kick out of it because people get really excited that all of a sudden they can attach history to something they've been seeing throughout their lifetime in these other places and cities. That was Debbie Komansky. She's the executive director of the Alban Palaszczuk Museum and Sculpture Gardens in Winter Park, Florida. We sat down with her to talk about the artist Alban Palaszczuk and the museum. Palaszczuk had a remarkable life and career before finally settling in Florida. Alban Palaszczuk was a sculptor. He was born in Moravia in 1879, and in 1901, he came to the United States. His two oldest brothers were uh, Roman Catholic priests out on the frontier in Minnesota and Wisconsin area. He settled with his brothers, learned English, got a job as an altar carving factory, and in La Crosse, 
and started saving money, went on to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. Uh, from there, he graduated top of his class and won a three-year fellowship to the American Academy in Rome. Came back, set up a studio in New York City and was doing quite well. He was approached by the Art Institute at Chicago to come and be head of their sculpture department, a position he took, but throughout his life continued to do a lot of commission work, monumental work, public art. A lot of it is in the Midwest, also pieces in Europe, and he eventually retired and he moved to Winter Park, Florida. Here, Debbie Kamansky explains the origins of the museum. His wife, who had also come over from what was then Czechoslovakia at that point, neither one had ever had children with their first spouses. And so they created the museum. Back in the late 50s, early 60s, there were really very few cultural institutions in Central Florida. It was a different time in a different place, very much. And so they wanted to get something back to their adopted home community and America. Like so many naturalized citizens, they were very passionate, particularly Alvin, and felt strongly of wanting to leave, he referred to his art as his children, leave a permanent home that could be shared with others in Winter Park and Orlando. The Palaszczuk Museum and Gardens are a -a one-of-a-kind experience in Central Florida. We're a historical home. We're on the National Register of Historic Places, and we're one of only just over 30 members of the National Trust of Historic Artists' Homes and Studios. We're the only one in Florida. We're one of the only ones in the Southeast. So we have that historical designation, and that speaks to how honored Mr. Palaszczuk was and respected his ability as an artist. His home was his studio, and so we have, they added on an extra building when he and his second wife Emily married so that he could work more in that space than in the middle of the living room where he was working. And so the house is set up, much of it the way he had it set up during his lifetime. And then in our gallery building, we bring in visiting exhibits from all over so that when people come to us, they get the Palaszczuk experience. He was a very inspiring man, and we have the ability to tell his story and the difficulties he overcame and the work he did throughout his life. Our gallery building bringing in visiting exhibits four or five times a year. We try to change it fairly often so that locals have a reason to come back and see it. Then we have three acres of sculpture gardens on Lake Osceola in the heart of Winter Park. So there is no experience like it other than ours in this area. That was Debbie Komansky of the Alban Palaszczuk Museum and Sculpture Gardens, and I am Portia Dossi, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also hear us as a podcast. Don't miss the television series version of Florida Frontiers. Check your local PBS schedule or visit myfloridahistory.org. Join us on Facebook for all the latest information on Florida history happenings. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.